1: Ryan is an autism and disabilities self-advocate from Massachusetts. Diagnosed with autism at the age of two, Ryan underwent applied behavior analysis therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. Since his high school days, Ryan has been sharing his life journey with various agencies, communities, and organizations, and he's known by people around him to have a fighting spirit. With a bachelor's degree in human services and rehabilitation studies and a certificate in aging services, Ryan specializes in older adults with disabilities, guiding and supporting them to pursue their goals while promoting compassion, empathy, and kindness. Ryan has also had several blogs published in the Organization for Autism Research. In today's conversation, we discuss the services Ryan received growing up, his perspective on ABA therapy, how autism affects his life, communication breakdowns in social situations, the need for research about older adults, and how professionals can provide better support for their clients. In this episode, discover what's possible when support includes all ages. To learn more about Ryan and his work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at autismpodcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Ryan Litchfield. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Could you please briefly introduce yourself?
0: Sure. My name is Ryan Litchfield, and I am a autism and disability self-advocate.
1: Great. So let's talk about your autism. How did you learn about your diagnosis?
0: Probably right around 19... 19- 96. So that's when I was actually diagnosed with autism. Before the age of two, my mom and my dad noticed I was having temper tantrums. They noticed that I was having difficulty with communicating, verbalizing, gesturing, and having difficulty just expressing what I wanted or what I needed. And it was very challenging for my family. Even like just like when I was a baby, you know, I was walking, I was, you know, learning about 20 to 40 vocabulary words, but I lost those 20 to 40 vocabulary words. So there was just a bunch of events that that took place that led to concerns and some red flags for my mom and dad and just for my family in general. And that's when they brought me to the doctors and they diagnosed me at the time with a pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified, which now today under the DSM-5 would be autism spectrum disorder. And basically during that time when I had the diagnosis, I went through ABA therapy, I went through speech therapy, and I went through occupational therapy. One thing to keep in mind, too, is with autism, a diagnosis can't necessarily be made based on like an X-ray or, or lab work or like for another medical condition or something. But it's more based on behavior and the way an individual socially interacts within their environment. And at the time, a lot of people had a lot of questions and there was a lot of uncertainty for my family and for the people that my family knew A lot of questions. Well, would I ever talk? Would I ever function? You know, am I going to be able to live independently? You know, am I going to need twenty four seven supports? At the same time, they also thought I may have had uh, petite mal epilepsy, which are like absence seizures. It's kind of like those blank stares. And I'll get into that a little bit later because there's a commonality between autism and epilepsy. About like a quarter of individuals with autism, diagnosed with autism, I should say, may have seizures and epilepsy. So right around my diagnosis of autism, I did undergo applied behavioral analysis. And in addition to that, I went through speech and occupational therapy. So I was basically learning language, receptive and expressive language, learning daily living skills. And with ABA, it was a very intense program. It was about 20 to 40 hours a week in my own home, And my mom and my dad, they were very strong advocates, especially for the ABA.
1: Mm. So they started right away.
0: That's correct. Yep. So I'll tell a little bit about like what my ABA program involves. Okay. So for example, learning how to make eye contact, because it's important to make eye contact when you're socializing with people, because oftentimes a lot of communication is nonverbal. And that can be hard for people with autism. For some people with autism, it can be more difficult than for others. But a, a lot of the times, you know, a high percentage of social interaction and communication is nonverbal. Mm-hmm. So eye contact's really important. I was also learning some fine and gross motor skills and b- learning to build muscle tone because that can be an area of difficulty for individuals with autism. Learning how to imitate actions and role play. Because you you want to be modeling off of appropriate behavior. You know what's appropriate behavior and what's not appropriate behavior. Whether if you're you know if you're going out in a community, if you're you're in the home setting, you're in a school setting. Those social pragmatics that is so important, and just being able to adapt to different environments, and just again because you know it, that's how relationships form, and that's how. Interaction form is by understanding the social pragmatics behind those different scenarios. Learning one-step directions, learning and understand spoken and written language, learning how to say yes and no. And then also what I was doing was learning how to match objects with verbs and just making associations basically between the objects and the words to get an understanding of, of what they mean. hmm Another funny story, when my ABA therapist and I worked together, she had, um they were action figures from the movie, The Lion King. And I was, uh it was a milestone, but I was reenacting the Mufasa death scene from The Lion King. I know for some people with autism, they have like favorite scenes or they have like favorite parts of like a movie or a television show or something. It's like, sometimes they can just repeat like the scene or something. And that's, or reenact basically what happens in that movie or in that, in that show. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 but it was a moment. It was a moment of me accomplishing something because sometimes, you know, you have individuals that will have toys or objects and they won't know how to associate with them or they won't know how to utilize them. Sometimes you have like blocks, you know, like for somebody who may not have autism, they use blocks. Okay. To make towers and to make, designs or, or structures. But for somebody, you know, on the autism spectrum, they might be using it as a way to organize, because that's just how their brain is wired and differently and stuff. And, you know, with autism, you have different communication styles and different learning styles. And that's something that's interesting, even at a young age, I think, is you, you start to notice, you pick up on some of those differences in the patterns of a way a person Response to stimuli, and again, with, within their respective environment. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's great to hear that you had a good experience with ABA. Do you still stay in contact with your therapist?
0: I do. She and I still communicate on social media, and she and I actually did a couple of speaking engagements at my former college at Assumption University, sharing my story with autism to college students and to faculty and stuff and there was one time where there was a lighted up blue event to support autism awareness and stuff and she and i shared my story and stuff and one of the moments actually that was the night after we did the lighted up blue event we went to a chinese restaurant and we had chinese food and we also had alcoholic drinks (laughs) (laughs) which my aba therapist like because I remember when I was younger, I was such a picky eater, like all I would eat was chicken and fries and pizza. And then she was like, you know, it's amazing how much you eat you have, you know, eaten now since then when you were very young. And now it's like we're having like scorpion bowls and having uh, Chinese food. (laughs) (laughs) So it's great.
1: Yeah. So as we know, ABA is a very controversial topic. We've Talked about the harm that it can cause on this podcast. And Mm -hmm. I just want to address some of that. You said that you received training to improve your eye contact. And some of the arguments on the anti ABA side is that it can be actually very anxiety inducing for some people with autism to be forced to look at people in the eye. What do you think about that?
0: To be honest, that's a very good question. I think it just, you know, individuals should have a preference, I think, whatever they're comfortable with, as you mentioned, you know, some individuals may not be comfortable with eye contact. And then there are individuals that do want to make eye contact. As I said earlier, in the context of, you know, social relationships and stuff, I would say about 90% of human communication is nonverbal but that doesn't necessarily mean that the person has to make eye contact in order to so in order to you know promote that nonverbal communication there's other ways to present nonverbal communication you know you have facial expressions you have body language you might provide like gestures, you know, kind gestures to people. For example, when somebody's having a bad day or something, you know, you might give them, you know, if you, if it's a good friend of, if it's somebody that you like know really well. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't want to do this to a stranger, but if it's a really like a close friend and they get some sad news, like oh, you know, somebody, you know, a good friend of theirs or a good family members of theirs passed away or something. You know, you might provide somebody, you know, a hug or you might provide them, you know, just, you know, a pat on the back as a way to empathize. And that well both empathize and to sympathize, Mm -hmm. I can relate to that. Or, you know, like, I'm sorry for your loss, you know, like, I'm here for you. Those kinds of things. It's kind of like, you know, making sure that the eye contact and the emotions match. It's that affect that's really key. Like, Is your facial expressions matching up with you know, your eye contact? Those kinds of elements do play a role in social communication. But that doesn't mean eye contact has to fully be the form of nonverbal communication. I, so I believe there's other ways that you can communicate with people without just having to do eye contact. A lot of us these days are, are using social media. We're using text. We're using augmentative communication devices, or we might be using other means to communicate our needs, our concerns, our feelings, our thoughts. So I think in 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 the context of eye contact, our society, you know, would look at it and say it's rude to not look at somebody when you're talking to somebody. And but I think at the same time, it it's kind of like. You have to, you have to put yourself into the person with autism's perspective. And that, you know, they may have a different way of trying to communicate. And that doesn't mean their way of communicating is right or wrong. Again, some people may not be comfortable with eye contact. I mean, obviously, you wouldn't want to be staring at somebody, you know, all day long. I mean, that would become a little bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I think it's human nature to like, you know, stare and then stare. Because oftentimes, when we're communicating, we're not going to just look at somebody's face for 24 hours. I mean, we're going to, you know, our eyes are going to be constantly moving. I can understand where society is coming from and, you know, and looking at their perspective. I do think there needs to be some flexibility in letting people with autism, you know, communicate and be able to, you know, express how they want to express themselves. It's a matter of coming to a, a common ground or finding that mutual understanding in communication.
1: Yeah. Another argument against ABA is that they say that it tries to normalize autistic people and force them to act neurotypical which can cause this trauma because people are forced to mask. What do you think about that?
0: So I I think in terms of ABA with the actual just the ABA the ther- the, the therapy itself I think everybody is entitled to an opinion, and I do think everybody will have their preferences and stuff. But, you know, in my opinion, I look at ABA as a toolkit. I'm going to use the analogy of of counseling. So let's say, you know, like somebody who might have, you know, a history of, of alcohol abuse or substance abuse, for example, and they go to a counselor. So then, you know, they go through the assessment process and they go through all these different components and stuff. Then, you know, basically the counselor says, okay, you know, what, what are your thoughts? What are your ideas? These are some options, you know, some treatment options. And then these are some of the ways that we can help you and stuff. But again, I, I think something to to consider is for that person, you know, if somebody has alcohol, I mean, they're going to have the choice of either, you know, changing their, their lives for themselves Or they're not. And I'm going to circle back now to autism because I agree. I think it's good to have some skills to get a sense of how other people without autism respond to everyday life and within their environments and stuff. But I don't think we should be changing people's autism. And we should be accepting people for who they are. I think we all have strengths. We all have needs. And I believe every person with autism is a person. I'm Ryan. I'm not just autism. My name's not autism. It's Ryan. Mm -hmm. I think ABA for me, and I go back to my experiences, I mean, it's helping me to learn more about myself. And I think it's hard. And I'll use the analogy, the square peg in the round hole, because that's so common, I think. For people with autism, it's like, we're the square pegs. And then it's like, you know, sometimes with society and stuff, it's like, here's the round hole. So sometimes we take these square pegs and we're trying to put them in these round holes and we're realizing that there's no, they're not fitting. They don't fit. They don't match. They don't connect. There's no link. And I think sometimes that's probably why, you know, families and individuals impacted by the autism spectrum experience frustration and, you know, hurt and stuff sometimes. And even I experienced those things, too, because oftentimes you feel like you're singled out and you just feel like you're not able to hit those marks, unlike other people, you know, who don't have autism. And as now we're seeing an increased prevalence of an autism diagnosis. I mean, when I was diagnosed, it was one ten thousand. Now, today, it's one in 54 children. And the fact that that's happening and that there are more and more individuals being diagnosed with autism, there needs to be, I think, some adaptability and there needs to be some flexibility in the way we communicate and the way that we connect with individuals on the autism spectrum. So with the ABA program, I think you're trying to enhance, you know, You want to have some behaviors and you want to be able to go into society, you know, with some sort of an idea of how other people, you know, react to different situations and stuff. ABA gives individuals the tools, but I think you want to have them engaged as well. Sometimes we immediately jump into problem solving mode. And I think sometimes that's why people probably get frustrated and, you know, people have concerns about ABA because it's like. OK, we're going to just go right into problem solving mode and we're going to just give this person all of these therapies and we're just going to be like, OK, this is what they're going to learn. These are the steps that they're going to take. For people who don't have autism, I think they need to just take a big step back. Think about, you know, the, the perspective. This is all about perspective taking. And I've said to people, it's one thing to learn about autism. It's another thing to live with it. You could be a mom, you could be a dad, you could be a teacher, you could be a colleague, you could be anybody. You may have learned about the autism spectrum. You may have family members that are on the autism spectrum. But at the end of the day, do you have autism yourself? Can you tell that individual, you know, like you can actually say that you have autism yourself and actually relate to that individual? And I think, you know, again, this does tie in with ABA because you're trying to establish that rapport with an individual. And, you know, that's what my ABA therapist was able to do. Even though she doesn't have autism, she was able to connect with me. This is one of the most common evidence-based practices that have been found in, in, in scientific research and stuff. I have found success with ABA and I have empathy. I can only imagine how difficult it is for some families that are struggling with the ABA process, especially for individuals with autism. And not seeing the progress, unlike other individuals that may be making that progress. And it does take time. And I think that's the thing. There's some frustrations and stuff. And sometimes you have parents and stuff that are saying, you know, they they just want their son or daughter to be better. And they just, they want them to overcome the autism. And I think sometimes people have a hard time really being accepting that. You know, autism is not something that's going to be cured. I mean, you know, long time ago, they thought autism was a child, just a childhood disorder and that that's it. And that, that was the end of it, but it's not. And now we're seeing that more and more, especially as people are getting older and stuff. So, ABA, I don't think this should only apply only in children and adolescents, but this could actually be effective in adulthood and older adulthood as well. But again, at the end of the day, everybody has their preferences, everybody has their opinions, and I think we need to honor and respect all those preferences and opinions because everybody's background stories and their experiences with the ABA interven with the ABA process is different. Yeah. But I do think, you know, as I'm saying, it's a two way street. We can't just say, okay, we're going to, we're going to solve X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and then assume that the individual is going to be all better. And that that's going to be the end of that. It just does not happen like that. It has to be, there has to be that engagement with that individual, even if they're a child. I mean, even children should have that opportunity to engage in, in their services and, you know, ask them the questions, like ask them, like, what are their hobbies what are their interests what makes them a person that's when you're going to start seeing the values and the strengths and all of that and even into into adulthood when you start talking about career interests and interests in relationships and interests in various arenas of life so i don't think aba is meant to quote unquote normalize a person i think it's meant to give them the tools to help them to be successful in various social situations and various aspects of life.
1: I appreciate hearing your perspective coming from someone who had a good experience with ABA. Although I do acknowledge that there has been trauma and we're continuing to explore those stories too, to bring light to those practices, to make sure that people can do better and not harm. So. Let's talk about your autism. How does it affect your life now?
0: Um, So childhood, as I mentioned earlier, I went through all that ABA therapy and stuff, went through speech occupational therapy. When I was a child, things were very, very hard. When I was doing my speaking engagements, I actually presented some of the, uh, Stigmas and stereotypes that I've endured, especially during childhood. So, for example, I mean, there have been people that have told my family and have told people like, you know, I should be institutionalized. Somebody actually at one point told my mom, or I mean, I don't remember the exact situation because I was very young, but basically, somebody that basically they should smack me for my bad behavior. And even people have said things like, "You talk weird. You have weird thoughts and feelings." People have said, you know, I need to do better personally. I've had people say that you don't belong here. And I've had people laugh and spread rumors and gossip about me and stuff. And I I noticed those things even when I was younger. Like, I was basically in a public school system. I was on an IEP. I was in the general education classroom. And, you know, I had accommodations and I had an aide as well. I had a lot of difficulty with transitions, and I know that can be very hard for people with autism, especially when the schedules are not properly structured, and then just noise in general. That was just something that was very challenging for me. I had a very difficult time trying to connect with people my own age, and yet even to this day, like sometimes I'm uncomfortable with connecting with people my own age. I would say that I'm doing a lot better like now in terms of my comfort than I was when I was younger. I think part of it was because I had such an enhanced vocabulary and had so much structure in my life and that I was more comfortable talking to adults. And again, I think sometimes when you've had so much structure in your life, like going through all those therapies and stuff, it can make you an effective communicator, but sometimes it's like, now it's like, I'm I'm more comfortable talking to an adult than I am talking to somebody my own age. When you would think, okay, you know, I should be, I should feel comfortable with talking to somebody my own age.
1: Mm -hmm. What is the discomfort there?
0: I think part of it is not picking up on those. So, kind of like the nonverbal cues. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm trying to get a feel. I have a hard time. I don't always pick up on, you know, what other people are talking about. So, sometimes you just, you feel like you're in an awkward situation. It's like, I feel like I want to be part with people, be be with, with people my own age and want to be involved in conversations and stuff. But even like elementary school, like I just, I was so comfortable being alone. And I was thinking like, why am I so comfortable being alone? And yet I don't want to be with people my own age and stuff. And I think some of that was maybe a sense of fear or and a sense of, again, just not knowing how to interact with people my own age. And so that's I think that's what contributed to some of that discomfort and stuff, because I wasn't really aware of the kinds of topics and stuff that were discussed. There was definitely a lot of crying and tears, and there was just some rejection from people my own age and stuff. And that actually even that was more common in middle school, which with adolescents was just very, very difficult. I mean, I was trying to be part of a band and I was trying to, you know, part of a math club and and trying to fit in with people my own age. my own age, but it was just, it was just hard. It was just hard to fit in, I think. Because obviously, I mean, when you're with people your own age, I would want to be comfortable because, you know, I'm I'm hoping that, you know, I can form friendships. It was just debilitating sometimes. But the fact that I tried to put myself out there to try to just fit in, it it really just, it meant something. And I do give myself credit for, you know, trying to put myself out there. Because it's hard. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, adolescence is, is hard in general and stuff. Um, but.
1: Mm -hmm. Have you tried to make friends with autistic people and have you found that to be easier?
0: I have. So as I was transitioning from middle to high school, which that was a very, very, very tough transition. And actually people thought I wasn't even going to make it through high school, but I proved them wrong. But yes, along that journey, I did meet a couple of really great people from high school that I still connect with to this day that are also on the autism spectrum. So I, I was able to form some friendships. And even now I have some friendships, not even just like within my, my area, you know, in, in Massachusetts here, but I've also have been able to connect with people out of state. I know somebody from Florida or somebody from Texas, and I guess that's one of the beautiful things about the internet these days.
1: Yeah. When you say that it's hard for you to read social cues, do you find that with autistic people too? Or is it that you feel autistic people have a common understanding of how to communicate with each other that makes it easier?
0: I think what, what's important to keep in mind is every person with autism is different in terms of their communication styles and in terms of uh, the way they socially interact with people. I think with individuals with autism, there's more of of a sense of empathy and there's more understanding in that they can pick up on things and, you know, I pick up on things and it's that sense of transparency in that we can be honest and stuff. And I think that's what's great about, it's almost like, you know, we're peers. We have lived experiences and then we can try to relate, you know, how we're thinking and feeling and, you know, and relate to the hardships that we have to endure and stuff. I've got to be honest, like it's so much harder to relate to people without autism. I mean, unfortunately, there have been times in my life where I've tried to and it breaks my heart because. Ideally, I mean, you want to try to form friendships with people, you know, like not just with autism, but also without autism. And I have found in my experiences with multiple people in my life who don't have autism, sometimes I have said and have done things that have either made them feel uncomfortable or they just feel like they're in an awkward position when I know it's not my intention. And sometimes I just get rejected or, you know, they just don't talk to me anymore. And I I think part of that is sometimes people don't fully understand the autism spectrum. But I think the other piece is their perspectives is going to be different than another person's perspective. So, for example, what I might perceive to be, you know, being just a good friend. I mean, I've you know I've helped friends out with trying to connect them to job opportunities, internship opportunities, and other activities and other hobbies and stuff. Sometimes the, especially if it involves a fe- like females, like I've not had the best of luck when it comes to females, especially without disabilities. They might think of it. Oh my God! You know he's he's fallen in love with me, and you know he has feelings for me, and all these different things, and. Unfortunately, that's quite common. This is where you have these misunderstandings, you have these misinterpretations. And when you have multiple misinterpretations and you have this miscommunication and your communication breakdown, that's where it leads to misunderstandings. And I think that is very common for people with autism, Mm -hmm. including myself. And I did endure hurt and pain from those experiences. And there were times where I was hurt and I was frustrated and there were times where I was manipulated and it hurts those are the parts that that can be hurtful for people who have to endure some of those challenges it's all part of the learning and growing process too and i try you know to be kind to people because at the end of the day you know we only live once as they say so i think we just have to try to be compassionate empathetic and kind to people mm. And we need to just try to accept each other's differences and stuff. That's key in any relationship. I mean, whether you have a disability or not, it's like when two people or three people or multiple people are together, you're going to have different personalities, you're going to have different insights, and you're, they're going to have different hobbies and interests. And I think being transparent, being open, being honest, communicating, I think those are a lot of the different elements that are so important when it comes to relationships.
1: Yeah. What are some of your strengths related to your autism?
0: I guess one of my strengths is, I would say having really good insight. You know, I just have the ability to analyze a situation and I can get a pretty good sense as to what I think is going to happen. People have said I have very good insight. Like, I'll give a perfect example. So I have done a lot of research on autism. So, for example, we have, you know, as we know, the prevalence of autism is on the rise. So now it's like one in 54 children. And then you have the number of older adults increasing in the United States, which I think is going to go up to like 20% within the next decade or so. And given those trajectories, the insight I can give is that there's going to be an increased number of adults and older adults because of the longevity, because the lifespan, especially given thanks to the advancements of healthcare and technology, that we're going to have a lot of adults with autism and older adults living longer because of these in- advancements and stuff. And that also means there's going to be a need for more supports and services and resources for those individuals. I've been going through articles, and they they have mentioned on several occasions where there is not enough funding, there is not enough research on older adults with autism. Especially, we're talking like not just like people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, we're talking people like, you know, who are going into like their 60s, their 70s, their 80s, because they have unique needs that other older adults that don't have autism may have. And I think there needs to be more research. There needs to be more qualitative and quantitative assessments and research methods to get a sense of what are the specific needs of this specific population, of this specific age group.
1: What have you found in your research?
0: So I was working on my article, so I'll just read like one of my paragraphs that I've worked on so far. I basically talk about how... Understanding physical mental health in the context of older adults, it's it's essential to helping, supporting their personal care needs. What I have found is that older adults with autism have associated health conditions like, like other older adults without autism. So that could be things such as osteoporosis, cognitive disabilities, heart disease, cancer, and osteoarthritis. Also, adults with autism also need to be monitored for seizure disorders about a quarter of individuals with autism often have epilepsy. That's common. Like that's just in general. There's also hypertension and allergies as well. So, because older adults have more needs because they have various healthcare needs and social needs, there's a possibility where I think that there could be a rapid increase in in the aging effects and there could be a quick you know rapid decline in in the associated the effects of those aging, you know like you know the physical, the biological and the and the social effects mm. The other thing to also keep in mind is mental health, and I will say a lot of us, even myself, we have associated anxiety and depression, anxiety and depression are very common in individuals with autism, not just for older adults but for you know children, adolescents, all these age groups. In older adulthood, there's also increased levels of depression and suicide, because as you get older, you know, you you lose people in your life, you know, people pass on, Mm -hmm. people start to feel isolated, the services and the supports that you've had maybe when you were a child are starting to fade. So this is a legitimate concern, and especially the fact that there's not enough research about these specific things with people on the autism spectrum, because it is a developmental disorder, which involves, you know, the behavior, the challenges with behavior, communication, social interaction, I mentioned how, basically, they might start demonstrating behaviors of aggression, property destruction, and even just some behaviors that are self injurious. And those are some some red flags that you know, it's good that we're seeing that, you know, in the other age groups, but we still have to monitor those kinds of things in adulthood and older adulthood. And there's so many different things. And some of the issues that, again, I mean, we really have to start focusing on the nature and the degree of the health care needs, because the health, the degree and nature of healthcare care needs for one individual with autism might be different than another individual. Then you also have to consider the variations in the different communication abilities. Some might be able to verbalize like I'm able to, but some of them might not be able to. And they might use augmented communication devices or they might have to use alternate ways to communicate something. Then you have life transitions, which is what I, you know, I kind of touched on with, you know, the depression and the suicide piece where, again, you have family members that are passing on. And then you have, you know, some and it's not like, you know, an older doll is going to keep, you know. There's some older adults that are working, but usually you're not working after that time. It's usually you're retired and then it affects the flow of routine and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I talk about, you know, so clinical training. I was looking at a report. They talk about how among healthcare clinicians and stuff, the quality of care, especially for people with autism and, you know, intellectual and developmental disabilities, they've done surveys and it's pretty much poor. I would say at most the quality of care might be fair, but there's a good percent where it's saying that it's poor. And as I said, you know, like the next point I was saying, the lack of knowledge and skills to support older adults with autism because there's not enough research. Yeah. That's why all these programs, you know, talk about ABA or you talk about, you know, just autism in general, like, you know, all these interventions and stuff, they are all focused on children and adolescents. Yeah. That's what it was on, you know, long, long time ago. But all of a sudden, it's like, this is a new reality. It's like, hello, you got the statistics, you got the prevalence, the increased prevalence, and then you got all these things. And it's like, we got to start doing something about this, especially for me. It's a domino effect. And again, I talk about ineffective delivery of health care. I think we need to we need to start really focusing on, you know, how older adults with autism focus on, you know, the differences in their environments and their, you know, and how they respond to different things. In addition to improving research methods, you know, I talk about effective communication, relationship building, and transparency among individuals, caregivers, and clinicians about the physical, mental health care needs of older adults with autism to providing quality health care. One other piece I will add is the social piece. Like this is why I go back to talking about hobbies and interests and utilizing strengths and stuff. So I was doing case management and I was a peer specialist for a little while um, for an organization. And, you know, I mean, it was a wonderful program to work with adults on the autism spectrum. And my philosophy was focusing on the individual and not just their autism. We have to look at their strengths. We have to look at the good in people because sometimes the strengths and sometimes knowing you know what what they like to do can be all the difference in terms of you know trying to improve their quality of life and it has done wonders in that kind of an approach
1: this i can tell is a passion area for you what made you interested in older adults
0: so when i was at high school i started that's when i started public speaking so right around my junior year of high school I was asked to do a community serve, like if I wanted to, you know, go do a public speaking engagement with another individual on the autism spectrum to talk about our stories and stuff. And then we talked, we shared our stories with students and stuff. And they asked us questions like, you know, what's your favorite game? What's your favorite food? What's your favorite sport? That was a powerful moment for me because not only were they asking about autism, they were asking about questions about me as a person. So it kind of goes back to, you know, looking at the person as a person and not just looking at somebody with autism. But fast forward, I went on to do public speaking, but when I was at Assumption, I got my bachelor's degree in human service and rehabilitation studies. And I wanted to pursue that because I had interest in working with individuals with autism, but also with people with disabilities in general from my lived experiences. And I just had the desire to help others and stuff. And then they also had another program. It was a certificate in aging Services. Because again, that's another growing need. You know, it's not just, you know, people with autism, but then we're also talking about the older adult population. Mm -hmm. So I decided to pursue that as part of my undergraduate work with the in the human services program. So I was kind of doing both at the same time. And I was doing an internship, I did a lot of administrative work, but I was doing a lot of like human services planning, I was kind of, you know, learning about information referral outreach the principles of case management i was learning a lot of different skills and you know the the impact that it has on older adults and stuff and i for a very brief period of time i actually was a case manager for an agency that worked with older adults unfortunately it didn't last too long because it, i i realized it was too much for me there's a lot that goes about when trying to help older adults i mean you know you're looking at their personal care needs their mm-hmm. homemaking needs and you're looking at All of these different, and then, you know, but there's so many different programs, like you have, you know, money management, protective services, and every obviously, you know, like, this is just like my state in Massachusetts, we have these kinds of different programs, you know, and I I mean, other states have different programs, I'm sure, but I'm sure they're also similar as well. And, uh I think just having those trajectories and just having that foresight too. As I said earlier, you know, I I have insight, but I also have foresight. And that's where I think this future is going to be heading. Like we're going to see more older adults with an autism diagnosis, living longer and trying to find independence. What I've also learned is there are some, individ- some adults with autism, probably in their 50s and 60s, that have probably never been diagnosed. They were misdiagnosed with a psychiatric or a mental health condition when they should have actually been diagnosed with autism. So, that will also play a role in the number of older adults living longer as well. So, there's that piece as well. Mm-hmm. So people with disabilities have needs, older adults also have needs. So it kind of just, it just correlates and it connects. And there's, you know, there there's a lot of similarities and stuff as we go forward, you know, like in the years to come, I mean, we really should start thinking about helping those specific age groups, especially again, those impacted by the autism spectrum.
1: Yeah. Got it. I think sometimes in general, the, Older population gets left behind. There's a lot of attention put on the future, future generations. And we have to just remember that the person's quality of life extends until the last day that they're living. So, yes. Yeah. Thank you for bringing this up. Now, Ryan, I want to switch gears a little bit. You've talked about your struggles and You've also talked about some of your strengths. What are some ways that you feel misunderstood?
0: At one point I mentioned, oftentimes, this is what I see in social work and in healthcare. A lot of times, professionals and clinicians like to be the problem solvers and like to get involved in somebody's life with autism, and it's like, you know, you think, okay, this is how you're going to, this is how we're going to solve this problem. And this is how we're going to address and taken care of and all of that. And think that the person with autism is going to be taken care of. But the reality is, is that I tell people all the time, like people with autism are going to communicate. They're going to learn and they're going to perceive the world differently. And Unfortunately, even in employment circumstances, I know like there's people that try to work with me and they try to, you know, help me out the best they can. Even so, I would say this is both for education and employment. There have been people in my life who have been very helpful and helped help me to be successful. And there are other people that have not been helpful and successful. And the idea is we have to allow individuals with autism, like myself, like I think it, I get frustrated when somebody just, you know, throws everything at me and it's like, okay, this is how we're going to handle this problem. And these are your options and, then, and then that's it and stuff. And I think you need to give the people an opportunity to be able to express how they're thinking, what they're feeling, what are their ideas. Let them be a collaborator in their life.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think sometimes we have individuals with autism that do not have a voice. And I feel like sometimes, you know, we're not being heard and respected as we should be. If I was going through a hard time or if I'm struggling or I have a problem or something, rather than just, you know, starting to generate alternatives and solutions and just jumping into problem solving mode, I would appreciate it if somebody just said, you know, what can I do to help you? How can I support you? Because it would give me an opportunity to speak and to say, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. These are my concerns. All of these different things. This goes back to communication because one of the key components of communication is active listening. And sometimes we're so busy in our lives and it's like we just want to get things done and over with. But we really just need to take the effort and the time to just take a step back and be like, okay. I think this person has really has something really important. They want to say we need to give them the opportunity to express again, what they're thinking, what they're feeling and basically share like what they think would help them. And again, that's why I feel like sometimes I would, I would be misunderstood and it's like, you know, this is, this is my perception. This is the other person's perception. Sometimes you Even parents of, you know, people with autism, like this is, that's why I said it's one thing to learn about autism. It's another thing to live with it. That's why people need to take that step back and be like, you know, okay, that might, that's great and all you know about autism. And it's great and all, you know, that you're helping, you know, that, you know, you might be a therapist or a doctor or somebody in the field working with people with autism. But did you take the opportunity to take a step back and let that person say what they need to say. I think that's where it all comes back to perspective taking. It's not just for Mm -hmm. people with autism. I mean, that's something I've had to learn throughout my whole life. Like I'm trying to learn to empathize with people. I'm trying to learn to understand the perspectives of others. And I'm trying to put myself in their shoes. But if they're not doing the same on their end, that's where there's so much issues with communication. And that's where things break apart. And I have experienced that in my life. Like, I've had people, you know, I've had friends who have, again, rejected me and who have done and said things that have hurt me and have put, you know, have put me in pain. And then later on in life, they say, you know what, Ryan, you're right. I shouldn't have done this to you. I'm sorry. You know, I I have a better understanding of autism. And It kind of goes back to where you don't have that enough knowledge and stuff. So I think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. I think the other piece is when it comes to trying to form friendships and relationships with people, it's like you have to have honesty, transparency, and you have to be open and upfront. Like I appreciate when people are upfront and open and honest with me. And they're not waiting like months or years later to tell me that there's a problem, because <laughs> that was in some instances when I've had the people that I've connected with have waited months or years to tell me, oh, by the way, we got a problem. <laughs> well, number one, that's just not right. People need to just. I, I think they're sometimes they're afraid to be honest because they don't want to hurt somebody's feelings and stuff, which I can get that side of the of the of the situation, but. If you're a good friend or if you're, you know, a good, decent person that you've known this person for a long time and, you know, you care about the person and, you know, you want them to just succeed and you want them, it's almost a disservice if you don't, obviously it's a disservice if you don't treat the person with dignity, with, if you don't treat the person with dignity and respect. And if you don't, you know, promote transparent and open and honest communication.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And even my learning styles, like, you know, I mean, I've had supervisors, they would get overwhelmed with all the, all my information and overwhelmed with, you know, all my work and stuff. And it's things I'm trying to work on. And the reality is, it's like, there's some things in my life I can change. And there's some things in my life that I can't change. This is just part of who I am.
1: Yeah, I know that everyone is different, obviously. But would you say that there is a particular learning style for people with autism?
0: So as the good saying goes, when you meet one person with autism, you meet one person with autism. And I think there's no one particular learning style for autism. I think some people with autism are good with auditory learning. Some are good with visual learning. And then you have people that are tactile learners. So an example, like let's say in the workplace. Okay. So in the workplace, a supervisor wants you to have a list. Then you have a, an employee with autism that gives you a recording or they might give you a chart of what the supervisor wants or, or, you know, what they're looking for. I think what's hard is this is the expectation. This is, they say, okay, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what the boss or the supervisor wants you to do. They want you to make a list. And this is what they end up generating. I'm going to be honest. And I would say, you know what, as long as the person produces the same results as everybody else, and as long as it accomplishes the goal, I don't think it makes a difference whether if you give somebody a list or a chart, or a video recording, or because what you're doing is you're accommodating different learning styles. Mm -hmm. And I think it's frustrating. And it's something I've just experienced recently is like, Unfortunately, this you know the way work goes. It's like you know, boss gives you something to do, and then you're supposed to do it. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying: the square peg and a round hole. You have the individual with autism, and then you have the workplace, and the two just can't, for some reason, connect. They just can't fit. And it's like that's where there needs to be some adaptability, and there needs to be some flexibility. You know, it's like mm-hmm. even in school. Okay, so for example, let's say you know the professor gives an exam. Okay, so usually they want you to do multiple choice, but if the individual with the disability can't do multiple choice questions, if they, you know, for, for some sort of disability reason, or they might have to do it in a different way. They might have to record their answers on a video recording device, or they may have to use the, like an alternate format of the exam. You're not changing the, the questions. You're not changing the standards. You're giving the person a fair opportunity to to demonstrate what they know. Right. Without making any like those kinds of modifications or any you're giving them fair access a fair opportunity to truly demonstrate what the individual knows and that should also apply with work too i have seen improvement with companies being more inclusive including people with autism and stuff but there definitely needs to be more awareness and education because there's things that people with autism can teach employers and teach you know business people and stuff because they bring strengths and talents to the table, that could help a company flourish and that could promote job productivity.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But then it's like you have employers that are like, no, I'm not going to do this training. No, I'm not going to accommodate this individual. Even though it's technically the law under the ADA, you know, like the ADA you have in the United States anyway, the reality is it, it's a complicated process because I feel like there's times where I've, I, I have not been heard and respected. And there were times where I had to try to advocate and speak up for myself.
1: Even when you disclosed your diagnosis?
0: I think even when I disclosed my diagnosis. Now, I have had companies that have been very accommodating that they have been supportive and all that. But I feel like sometimes companies don't try hard enough. Again, I think it goes back to what I was saying about like something like healthcare and social work. It's like, lack of knowledge, lack of knowledge, lack of skills, Mm -hmm. and not having the training. And I had this talk with my dad the other day and talking about how, you know, companies, they're trying to save money. And sometimes they don't like to put a lot of money towards that training and stuff. And it's like, well, here's the other issue. 90% of individuals with autism are at home right now with no job. They're either without a job or they're maybe working but they're underutilized. Yeah. And I think a lot of those individuals are frustrated, they're hurt and they just they're just trying to make a living for themselves. I almost wish there was legislation and I wish there was policies that would mandate employers to have trainings about autism and that is improving with some companies and I give kudos to those companies and stuff, but there's still a lot of legwork that I think needs to be done. We're so busy in our lives that we forget to take a step back and understand the perspectives of others. And it's funny because I, this was something I learned in high school, like when I, you know, throughout my years, you know, like social pragmatics and stuff for people with autism, that's like one of the skills that we were taught and we're learning to do. And yet there are people without autism that don't even know how to utilize perspective taking.
1: <laughs> hmm. Right. Yeah. It's that double empathy problem. Have you heard of that?
0: It is. I have. And I just think, you know, again, that's where things are difficult. It's like differences. I mean, we're not even just talking about like, just autism, but it could be any other things. I mean, you have people of different characteristics and categories and stuff.
1: Different cultures, different backgrounds.
0: Exactly. And I think that's why We need to just try to be accepting of people's differences. I would voice that across the board, I think. That's so important. But I think, especially in the terms of autism, it's like, we need to give these people a fair opportunity to, you know, show their talents to the world, show their talents to the people and give them a chance to, to try to live a fulfilling life, especially like with employment. I mean... That's ideal, you know, like, or even housing. I mean, parents, you know, of individuals with autism, I mean, they would love to see their son or daughter have a job and have their, and and, and you know, owning their own house. That's just like the American dream for them, probably mm-hmm. to see them go on and to grow and to succeed. And I feel like there are still some barriers in society that we still have to get through. And this is just you know me this is me being an advocate, you know, and this is what i do and I mean it's pretty much you know embrace the fighting spirit, I mean, I have a fighting spirit, so it's you know it's like i mean mm-hmm. i i i I care for people, you know and i I want to see people succeed and as I said, I think we have a lot of challenges, but there's so much good in people with autism, we have strengths. One of the things I'm trying to work on too is trying to implement a, a nationwide peer support training that's like in the works and stuff. And hopefully that will go through in the future, maybe.
1: What's that going to be like?
0: Well, like I said, it there's not it's not set in stone. We're just right now, I'm working with some people to do some focus groups to talk with people with autism and to get a feel of what their needs are. What are their needs? What are their concerns? You know? What would they value from a peer? You know, a peer, I look at as somebody that mentors, educates, motivates, and helps them to learn and to grow and to be successful in life, which is what I was doing, you know, like I said, for an agency at one point, you know, I was doing the case management piece, I was doing the peer support piece, and connecting, you know, utilizing their strengths and their potentials to help them to achieve life goals and objectives. So right now, I'm kind of we're just trying to get some information about that. And I think what that would allow is for people with autism to work just from sharing their lived experiences to help other people. You know, it's almost like the, the whole philosophy of paying forward. That's so important. Acts of kindness, acts of getting the people the hope and the strength that they need to be successful in their lives. And that's like one of my things like that on the top of my head right now. I mean, one of the things I'm actually trying to do is I would like to actually have my own business at some point which is actually, that's what I'm in the process I'm trying to do right now. That's the direction I am going to be taking, actually. And one of the things I've had thoughts about was helping adults and older adults with autism, maybe, you know, whether that's, you know, doing some trainings or doing some um, workshops to help, you know, to, to, to teach and to inspire people, you know, companies or hospitals or schools or to basically, you know... To, to show them, you know, okay, this is this from my lived experience, you know, this is what I think might be effective in helping your people to be successful. Yeah, because I feel like that would generate job productivity, and that would generate results in the long run. I still have some ideas, I'm, I'm I kind of have some, some things in my mind that I'm, I'm still trying to iron out some of the details, but that's a works in progress sort of thing. That's my direction that I will be taking
1: great well good luck to you on that
0: well yeah thank you i appreciate it maybe i could connect more people with autism you know in other states and maybe even other countries or something you know
2: Mm -hmm.
0: the opportunities i think are endless especially now in a world where we all have internet access and when we where we all have u.s and international communication so i feel like there's a lot of opportunity there's a Lot of opportunities to, to start establishing those relationships and connections up across the autism community.:
1: Yeah, beautiful. All right, Ryan, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to professionals in the field of autism services to better understand and work with their autistic clients?
0: That's a great question. I think first and foremost, one of the things we have to use is a holistic approach. Because oftentimes, like, it's almost like the equivalency of when we're looking at a medical condition, you know, like, oftentimes, we were so focused on the medical model. And it's like, we look at the diagnoses, the symptoms, the treatments and all of that. But I think when we are working with individuals with autism, no matter what capacity, I think it's so important to look at the whole, the whole individual. Let's look at what is their family like? You know, what is their social life like? How about employment? What about education? What are their hobbies and interests? What is their housing situation like? Because what you're doing is you're learning about a person. It's almost like you're getting the life story of an individual. It's like you can pinpoint areas of need, but you can also focus on the strengths and be like, Oh, but you know you have these kinds of strengths, and you try to get a sense of you know the areas of need, and then you try to narrow that down. but at the same time, you also want to have those individuals with autism be engaged and you know participate in that exploration of what they might need help and support with. And I think we need to stop just solving people's problems and just saying like, "Okay, we're going to do this, then we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this." We're and I think sometimes when we're, we're solving people's problems and we're doing too much, it affects the rapport that you have b- between an individual with autism and a professional. And so I think it needs to be a collaborative process. We need to generate alternatives and, you know, solutions after you have the opportunity to listen to what they have to say. Let them voice their concerns. Let them be heard and respected. And I think even after, you know, you come up with alternatives and stuff, allow the individual to make those choices and to make those decisions. And I think we need to honor dignity of risk, which basically dignity of risk means we're allowing the individual to make their own choices. Even if they make a bad choice or a bad decision and they try something, we have to honor that even if it's legal or illegal, but I think we're we're not telling them what to do. We're just, we're giving them, you know, some guidance and support. And at the end of the day, we have to try to let the individuals make their own decisions. And if they choose out of those alternatives or something, that's great. And then, you know, you'd try it out. And then if it doesn't work, you go back to the drawing board and, you know, you you start all over again and you just keep initiating that Rehabilitative and collaborative process with the individuals. We need to start looking at the strengths, and we need to be looking at the positive, the positive psychology of individuals with autism, not just look at the deficits. Because uh, even in my research, I have seen a lot of times professionals and clinicians and stuff will sometimes they'll look just on the on the deficits and they'll look at the challenges and stuff. And I feel like sometimes we forget to remind ourselves, like these are people too. That also have hobbies and interests, they also have strengths and they have talents that they can offer and they can bring to the table in any aspect of society. Dr. Temple Grandin actually, there was a quote that I actually remember from her. It's the world needs all different kinds of minds to work together.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that really resonated with me because it's so true. I mean, the world needs all different kinds of minds in terms especially with autism, because like I said, autism Is a spectrum. So autism, you're going to have different communication styles, you're going to have different learning styles, and they're going to perceive and they're going to they're going to look at problems and they're going to look at situations differently. And instead of just disregarding what they have to say, or instead of just, you know, dismissing, you know, their concerns or their needs or whatever. How about we allow the opportunity to let them come in and be like, hey, you know, this is how I'm seeing this situation or this is how I'm seeing this problem, because that again, that allows that collaboration and they might be able to provide a solution for somebody that somebody may have never even thought about. And that could be that could make all the difference, you know, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: whether if it's in the workforce or if it's in the educational arena or any aspect of life. I think we all need to have empathy and compassion and kindness for people, especially when we're providing a a service to people. Because I think when you have the dedication and the commitment to actually be there for them and to be in the present moment and to listen to what they have to say, they're going to have great admiration and respect for the work that we do every single day to help improve their quality of
1: life. Got it. Well said. Thank you. How can people learn more about you, Ryan?
0: I have a website called Ryan's Voice. It's rkl at ryansvoice.blog. dot blog. You know, you can learn a little bit more about me. I do have some blogs, some articles as well. Not just about autism. But I talk about other things like aging and other health related conditions and stuff. Also, am on YouTube. I have a channel called Ryan's Voice. And I did do a couple of interviews for Ryan's Voice with friends, people sharing their experiences with autism, as as well as their health conditions and stuff. Great. So if people want to learn more about me, I mean, that'd be the best way to, to do so.
1: Okay. And we'll put links to your website and your YouTube on our show notes.
0: That's great. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for sharing your story with us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, anxiety and depression are very common among individuals with autism. Older adults are more likely to suffer from higher levels of depression and to commit suicide. Ryan advocates that more research about this specific population needs to be conducted in order to adequately train clinical care professionals. Oftentimes, there's so much focus on autism services for children that older autistic adults are left out of the conversation. We need to keep in mind that these children will someday be adults too. How do we, as a society, care for this vulnerable population so that their quality of life extends to their last day? Just a reminder, our global autism community is open to anyone related to autism. Whether you're a self-advocate, a family member, or a professional in the field, you can participate in these important conversations on our platform. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community.
0: You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll
2: be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.